Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 4 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Get back in to confession. And I, I debated with myself. It's always an interesting debate because I make some good arguments about whether to get back into confession or repentance because this is Nehemiah's prayer here is a prayer of repentance. I stuck with confession because I think we are pretty good at, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. And maybe not as good at, at, at defining what that is. We'll repent. We'll say, oh, I'm, I'm going to stop sinning, Lord, when he wants to talk about the sins that are so easily entangling us, so easily ensnaring us. So I left it as get back into confession because that is uh, it's the second thing Nehemiah does in his prayer, but it's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Where we are uh, in, in the, the realm of history uh, first of all, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible are one book. They're, they're not divided into Ezra and Nehemiah. It's all, it's all one book. It's uh, uh, believed that the, the Ezra wrote both of them. Um, uh, Ezra had a memoir he wrote. Nehemiah had a memoir he wrote. Ezra took both of those and other uh, sources and, and put them together and came up and, and, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Probably also wrote First and Second Chronicles. By the way, it was all kind of one big uh, writing project for very possibly Ezra. Um, where we are in the timeline here with Nehemiah is Nehemiah in verses one through three, which aren't on the screen or anything, and won't be. There's a little bit of background. He has learned that. Uh, the, the gates and what little work had been done on the walls around Jerusalem have been destroyed. Uh, let's put it in today's terms. What little bit of rebuild had happened got wiped out. Now, we're lucky, blessed, whatever. I'll, I'll go with blessed. Our little bit of rebuild didn't get messed up by uh, an ice storm or, or snow or, or water this time, um, but that's, that's what Nehemiah has learned about. The gates have been burned, the wall, what little bit of the wall was up has been torn down, and he's learning about it about three years after it happened. You think our mail is slow right now. Uh, he learns about this three years after it happens. You can read about it happening in, a, in Ezra 4, 23. Ezra talks about stoppage on the rebuild process and some problems and letters go back and forth. Nehemiah was in on these letters, we find out, probably carrying some of these letters back that started the rebuilding. The timeline, with it being two different books, gets messed up. That's one of the things that Faith Life, the, the, the free resources that we get as a church, 
you go in, you type in, it shows you timelines and those sorts of things. It'll explain all that to you. There you go, Tom. He didn't even pay me to say that in the middle of my message. So he's learned about something that happened in 448 B.C. The event happened in 448 B.C. He's learning about it in 445 B.C. And I tell you that because I want you to, to, to visualize how long it's been, Okay. It is 142 years since the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. It's been 142 years, if my math is right, and I make no promises, since Jerusalem fell. It's been 90 years since the new temple foundation was laid. I preached about that two weeks ago when we talked about the the foundation being laid. It was get back in to uh, worship. And, and the people celebrating the foundation being laid. And, and it's been 90 years since that. The temple took another 20 years to complete. So it's been 70 years since the temple was completed. Chapter 6 of Ezra tells us about the completion of the temple. Ezra wasn't there. He was just telling us about it. That was in 515 B.C. And what has occurred in those 70 years is since is some of the gates have been replaced and a little bit of the wall. 70 years. Y'all, I hope our rebuild doesn't take 70 years. Uh, I'm just, you know, some days I wonder. Uh, I was talking to some folks this morning we lost a week just with our own snow and ice, but a lot of our workers, a lot of the supplies, the, the roofing and the, the siding, metal siding was supposed to be here last week. Well, the week messed up that, but Texas, how long is Texas going to be out of commission where a lot of our supplies were coming from? So our one week could translate to two or three or four. Now that's just me talking, not the contractor or anything. I have no evidence for that other than my own uh, cynicism and pessimism. Um, But it just feels like some days it might be 70 years before the walls get rebuilt. Maybe not. But this is where Nehemiah is. So, a little bit of construction. And and, and if you read the the minor prophets, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, and, and you are, if you're keeping up in your, your D group, they're, they're talking about, hey, why aren't y'all building the things you should be building? At some point, he says, that the ha- your houses are nice, and the temple wasn't. What, what, what are you doing? Why are y'all not in on the work you're supposed to be doing? So that's where Nehemiah is. He is the cupbearer, we find out in verse 11, to uh, Artaxerxes, and cupbearers, while they presented the wine, they got to pick the wines. They were the sommelier for the king. If uh, you watched all the cooking shows that came on in the late 2000s, and they, I mean, 2000 aughts, and they, they were, we did. That's the only reason I know what a sommelier is. Um, I'm not one. Uh, I don't drink wine. There, I, I put it out there. So anybody says, well, yeah, Michael said he... Um, but he had more responsibilities than that. It was very common, actually, for the cupbearer to be not just the one who... T- also, by the way, he tested the wine. Yep, it's not poison to king. You're good. 
Um, that, that, that's, that's a great job. Uh, it, yeah, don't drink this. Click. You know, that, that's, that's the same job. But, you know, when y'all sit down to a cup of coffee, uh, we'll say, with a friend, you start talking, and, 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 you know, more so probably when you sit down with a cup of wine. He, Nehemiah, the cupbearer, was often the confidant of the king, talked about a lot of things, uh, usually had more than one role. It was a, actually a very powerful position. In some uh, 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 courtrooms, the cupbearer would be the number two person in the land. It's possible Nehemiah had some sort of role like that. Daniel uh, had a similar role. Uh, Haman uh, with, with uh, Xerxes had a similar role. So you, you see this over and over. So Nehemiah gets this information. He's in this position of authority over Persia. And he doesn't know what to do with the information. Actually, I think he did. Uh, there seems to be immediately a turning point in Nehemiah's focus. It's no longer my responsibility as a cupbearer as whatever other roles he might have had. He saw in the knowledge of what was going on, the, the presentation of that knowledge, a calling. If I remember correctly, doesn't that kind of harken back to our days of experiencing God? When God tells you where He's working, that's your call to join Him? Well, that's what Nehemiah saw here. God told him where he was working, and he realized, this is my call to join Him. So, Nehemiah does the very thing he should do. He prays. Also going back to our experiencing God, right? He, he goes to prayer. He knows the scriptures, and he goes into praying. And that's where we pick up in verse 4 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you, both I and and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have, not, and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, uh, nope, sorry, back up. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. And as Etta prayed this, 
prayer for us this morning. It, it is a great parallel, I believe, of, of where we are. We need to pray this prayer. But we're going to look at his prayer in, in, in five different chunks and see what Nehemiah was praying for. Again, we're going to hang out on the confession part for quite some time, so I'll warn you that, uh, of that now so you can get ready if you take notes with your, with your pen and stuff. Five different parts of, his, of this passage tell us how to pray, how to confess, what confession will do for us. The first thing we see with Nehemiah is that he entered into a time of extensive prayer. Now, I don't know if Henry Blackaby would be okay with this long of a prayer. Uh, he might say, God told, showed you what he was doing, then you need to join in. That's okay, and that, that's good and right, but there are sometimes steps that have to be taken to get there, and Nehemiah knew that. I believe, by the way, Henry Blackaby would be fine. Turns out, Nehemiah prayed for about four months. Four months, Nehemiah prayed about what he was supposed to do. Now, there's an interesting little contrast here we, we need to make. We know that in the book of Esther, it never mentions God. Never mentions his name at all. As a matter of fact, somebody pointed out, and I don't remember when it was or where it was, and I had not thought about this, it also never mentions prayer. Esther calls her, her team in the, in the palace to fast with me. Uh, Mordecai fasts, the people fast, but they don't, doesn't say they don't pray, it just never mentions prayer. Well, that's an interesting tidbit, I don't have a huge point to make about that, other than Nehemiah does not have that issue. Uh, as Etta said, Nehemiah will break down in the middle of work. Something's going on, something's happening, he hears about an issue, Nehemiah stops what he's doing as far as the narrative is concerned and prays. And usually what, just a couple of sentences, right? It, it's, it's not this big, long, uh, flowery thing, it's Lord, we got a problem, we need you to fix it, we don't know what to do, take care of it, please, thank you. Chink, 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 back to work. He did this for four months. In this case, it wasn't chink, 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 it was poor, 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 drink, 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 poor. And he prayed in between that. See, Nehemiah knew what had to be done. He, he knew that his, his calling had changed. He knew that he was no longer called to be the, the, the cupbearer in the court of Artaxerxes. He was called to lead his people to rebuild Jerusalem. But how in the world is he going to do that? How in the world is he going to work this out? We, we know from uh, Esther's testimony that you don't just show up in the king's court to ask a question. Now, this uh, Artaxerxes, this is... A number of years later, um, this is a different, uh, it, it gets a little confusing when you talk, start talking about kings and even Sanballats and Tobias and those guys because we know from uh, 
records from other people groups at the time that there were there was Xerxes one, Xerxes two, Artaxerxes one, Artaxerxes two. There was a sand ballot and this sand ballot. There were the names of the priests. They repeated the names. So there was sometimes some confusion. Wait, were we talking about the same guy that was around with Esther or this? No, no. They just didn't put the little one. They didn't put Junior on it or Trey. They didn't. They didn't do those things for us to help us out. So Nehemiah knew from the stories of Esther. And from his own experience, I can't just go to the king. And even as cupbearer, even in, in my position as uh, uh, court confidant or whatever other, whatever other responsibilities he might have, it's not just something he could bring up and say, hey, hey, king, you remember how you wrote those letters? Go back and read Ezra 4, 5, 6. You remember how uh, you wrote those letters saying, uh, the, the building had to stop, or rather, do you remember how your, your grandpa wrote the letters that said the building of the walls had to stop? You, you, could you change your mind on that, please? That would be great, thanks. So even though he knew what had to be done, he also knew he had to wait for God's timing. And y'all, this is one of the most difficult parts of following God's will. A lot of the time, I won't say most, and I guess I could say 51% is most, just by definition. It's above average anyway. A lot of the time, we know what needs to be done. Sometimes we just don't know when to do it. Or worse yet, we know what needs to be done, and we know that the timing is only when God says, here's the door to walk through. And waiting for that door. Not getting ahead of God. Not getting behind God. But waiting on his timing. Nehemiah knew that. And he was going to wait until God made it clear. Through this extensive prayer. What we see in Nehemiah 1.4. Is that time with God. Will expose the areas we need to confess. Because. The next part of the prayer, which was very likely a, a um, when you take a lot of things and you squeeze them together. Summary, thank you, yes. It's those hard words I have trouble with. A summary of his four years. Hey, when I'm looking for a word, yell it, because I don't, you know, I, I'm getting old in my ears. A summary of these four months. And Nehemiah knows, I've got to get to a point of confession. Time with God will expose those areas we need to confess. The first thing Nehemiah prays, though, is, is not about himself, not even about his confession, but his exaltation of God. He is a court guy. He knows that when you go into the court of the king, you talk about the king first. You, 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 in, in, in worldly realms, you flatter him, you butter him up, you get him ready for whatever it is you need to talk about. Even if it's not flattery and buttering up, it's recognition that 
as far as our governmental structure is concerned, you're up here and I'm down here, so I'm going to come in in a, um, an honoring, a humble manner before I enter the court of the king. Nehemiah understood that before I enter the court of the heavenly king with some pretty deep major requests, I'm going to recognize who God is, who I am. That's when we get to the confession part. But first, who God is. It's a necessary reminder of, of his power, his ability, God's power, God's ability, God's love. What Nehemiah says here in verse 5 is, Lord, the God of heavens, uh, great God over everything, great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. What does Nehemiah recognize here in this prayer? I think three things primarily, there's probably a lot more, but just in a reading, we see that God is powerful. Great, uh, a God of the heavens, great and awe-inspiring God. Nehemiah is recognizing the fact that I have this need, we as a people have this need, your city, Jerusalem, city of peace, it has this need, and you, God, are able as great as this king is, as powerful as he is, as much as he thinks he holds the power of life and death over people, over kingdoms, over cities and walls and palaces and such, actually, God, you have the power. You have the power over pandemics and hurricanes and now ice storms. Our brothers and sisters in Texas, their homes, I'm seeing videos of churches, of sanctuaries that now look like ours on the inside because everything's been ripped out. Uh, church in Austin, Hyde Park, 250,000 gallons of water in their basement. An Olympic-sized swimming pool in their basement in Austin. Another church in Amarillo. Uh, five feet of water in the basement of one of their buildings. Just over and over and over, homes uh, destroyed uh, because of the water on the inside. You know, the hurricanes come from the outside. This is a whole, whole nother thing. And then, of course, we have right here at home, uh, we've got the, the White House at Dry Creek that burned down, burned up, burned gone at the beginning of the week, Atlanta Baptist Church, I think it's Atlanta Baptist, or maybe it was First Baptist, Atlanta, Louisiana, caught on fire, burned up. The God that Nehemiah is praying to, the God that we pray to, is powerful above all of those things. He's powerful enough to have stopped them. And that's really what ticks us off a lot of the time, isn't it? God, you could have stopped that. You, you have the ability to go and put out that fire. 
you know, shoot little lightning bolts to seal that pipe or what? I mean, you, he could have done any number of things, but God, you didn't. Well, then I think he's just trying to teach us the next point that he's gracious. God, grace would have been it not happening. No, that's why, why are you special? Why do bad things get to happen to other people but not you? Why, why do bad things get to happen to other churches but not your church? This, this is the world in which we live. This is what sin has done to us. And in the midst of that, God is gracious. Nehemiah says that. He keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him. The agreement was gracious. You obey me, you get the blessings. You don't obey me, you get punishment. But I still never leave you. You don't keep your part of the covenant, I will still keep mine. That's, that's some grace. And Nehemiah recognized that. Nehemiah recognized that he also keeps his promises. I tell you I'm going to do something, God says. You can count on it. So when you, when you uh, uh, disobey, when you veer away from me, I'm going to discipline you to bring you back. But when you come back, I am going to continue to bless and keep my covenant with you. I will provide exactly what you need when you need it. You, God, you keep your promises. You are gracious. You are powerful. How does Nehemiah know that? Because time with God will show us we are the problem, not him. Some scholars have compared this prayer to some psalms that were lament psalms. We, I, preached through, uh, I have preached through a number of those, uh, 1 through 14 or 15, Psalm, or psalm 3 through 15, something like that, are, are the lament psalms. And it's, it's almost always the psalmist, David or whoever, saying, Lord, I've done this and they do that and things are bad and you need to act. In this prayer, there's no, Lord, I've, we've done this well. We have been faithful in this area. Not to, to deny David or the psalmist's view that they had done well, that they had been obedient in the ways that they said they had been. But Nehemiah knew in this prayer, because of his time with God, God was powerful, God was gracious, God kept his promises, and we did not. We have sinned. God is not the problem. We are the problem. And that leads us to number three. The third section, Nehemiah's confession of corporate and personal sin. And that's the second half of verse 6 and verse 7. I confess the sins we have committed against you. We have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward, your, or toward you and have, not, and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your, serv your servant Moses. Nehemiah knew that he was the cupbearer of a Persian king 
because of the sinfulness of Israel from the time of Solomon, 920 B.C., to the fall of, the fall of Jerusalem, 587 B.C. Nehemiah knew, I'm in this position, as great as it may be, because of the sin of those 400 and something years in Israel. He recognized that. Now, Nehemiah was not there 142 years ago when Israel fell. He's not, he's not one of the, the uh, uh, antediluvian guys who lived for so long. He's, he's not 300 years old or anything like that. He wasn't there when Israel fell. He was not a reason for the exile into Babylon. Neither was his father. Neither was his father's family, at least the ones that were alive. His dad's brothers or sisters and, and, and cousins and, and, and nieces and nephews and all that. And probably not grandparents. You probably had to go back two or three generations or more to find the ones that would have been alive that day. And yet, Nehemiah says, I confess the sins we have committed against you, both I and my father's family have sinned. There have been a lot of conversation about confessing sins you didn't commit, or confessing for groups, or repenting for groups. Nehemiah did it, Daniel did it, Ezra did it, Ezekiel did it. It's very biblical. See, I can confess when I'm not guilty. I can in my case, it may only be and probably is only acknowledgement, not admission, but it is me acknowledging that my tribe, whatever my tribe is at the time, has sinned. People in my tribe have sinned. If we go back to Joshua, and we talked about, if I remember correctly, Achan and him taking artifacts from Jericho. Achan took them. We don't have any indication that his family knew anything about it. Yet his entire family was punished for the sin that Achan committed. We are responsible for each other. The answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is yes. We are responsible for each other. It, it, Paul later says in uh, 1st or 2nd Corinthians, he says, what do I have to do with judging what the world does? Basically, sinner's going to sin, y'all. The world's going to be the world. My concern is what my brothers and sisters are doing in the church. That's where we judge each other. That's where we talk to each other. Judge not lest you be judged. Every one of us in here will be judged on the same standard as believers in Jesus. We will be judged based on the righteousness of Christ. And we will be judged by, on our actions by the standards of Scripture. So we as believers are absolutely called to judge each other's actions. To look at each other and say, fella, lady, in the nicest way we can, of course, that ain't right. You can't do that. We cannot be about that. 
you cannot be about that. Lord, forgive us for the sins we have committed. Nehemiah understood not only was their current situation because of sin, but the sin that caused the situation is always ready to spring back up. Idolatry is always just a step or two away from worship. Worship of the true God is only a step or two away from making things about God or things about worship the true idols. There's discussion of uh, when Aaron and the people built the calf in, in, at the base of Mount Sinai. Were they building a God or were they merely building something to look at while they worshipped God? It's a great conversation to have and an interesting t- d- distinction to discuss, but God didn't care. Because they were making an idol out of, at the very least, the worship of God, if not making an idol to worship. Did you know that your worship can become your idol? You're no longer worshiping God, you're worshiping your worship. I'll let you all just think about that a little bit and argue with me later on in the week. But Nehemiah knew at any point this can come back up and cause more problems. See, sinfulness comes with consequences. He knew that. He confessed that. And he wanted to prepare his heart and the hearts of anyone who might come into contact with him as he prayed. uh, uh, Prepare their hearts against that. Time with God will show us that our personal and corporate sin has caused destruction, caused the destruction, and we will confess it. As Nehemiah spent the four months with God, he was not unaware of how they ended up in Babylon, now Persia. He was not aware of the, unaware of the sinfulness of the people in Israel, Judah, actually, at the time. But the four months he spent with God in prayer led him to realize we're right there now. It could be us right now if we are not careful. Now, let me say this at the beginning of this little section. I don't claim natural disasters come because of sin. I've told you that before. After 9-11, I would not have said that was because of the sinfulness of, of New York. I, I uh, did not say, and I, I would not say, that the hurricanes hit Lake Charles because of the casinos. Or I wouldn't say Katrina was the result of the sinfulness on Bourbon Street. I would never say that uh, because I am not a prophet. Also, let me just throw this out here. If anybody takes, and I think I've talked about this before, if anybody goes back and watches this video and takes a clip out of what I just said, they will be able to show a clip of me saying the hurricanes hit Lake Charles because of the casinos. Did you know that? They would be able to take that clip out. and See, Michael said that right there. Because I did say those words. Don't take what I just said out of context. Okay? It's, It's been done. 
I'm saying I don't say those things. But I will say this. While sinfulness didn't cause those things, while maybe sinfulness in, for example, just a random one, our church didn't cause our walls to blow out and the rain to come in and us to lose so much of the structure of our property, while our sin didn't cause it, we are weaker as a church. And I'm not talking about structurally. We are weaker as a church when the storms come because of our past sins. If we're struggling to make it through this time of storm, I would dare say we are struggling in part because of previous sin. Because we as a church may not have been spiritually prepared to handle the storm. Israel, Jerusalem, because of their sin, were not prepared spiritually So the structure didn't matter. They were not prepared spiritually to take on Babylon when they showed up. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah told them, y'all, don't even bother fighting. You might as well give up now so at least some of y'all will live. Because it's coming and you're going to lose. You are not prepared spiritually to fight this battle. As a matter of fact, in their case, the battle was due to their spiritual infidelity so as a church as churches nationwide we are weaker when the storms come if we have allowed sin to run rampant slander lying quarrelsomeness in our ranks and maybe many others that I'm not even aware of and you aren't either have created a weaker church that isn't prepared for the storms when they come. We would never allow, as a church, murderers or sexual deviants to move among our ranks and to lead unchecked and unrepentant. That doesn't mean we wouldn't allow people who are repentant of their sin to come and be a part of our services, of our worship, and maybe even of our membership, depending on what has occurred. But if someone were living in those sins, we would never allow them to move unchecked and unrepentant. Yet we allow gossips and liars and slanderers and belligerents to do that. And when we do, when we allow sin in our church, remember Paul said, I, have no, I don't have anything to do with judging the outside world, sinners going to sin. But I do, we do as believers have a responsibility to call each other to holiness. And when we don't do that, when we do allow sins that are okay, sins that, well, We don't want to bring this one up with this person because it's just going to make that worse or that person has authority or whatever the situation is. When we allow those things to continue, our walls are weakened and we are more susceptible to the storms. Not structurally. Again, I'm not talking about sheetrock and metal siding and roofing. Those things are easily replaced and fixed. Well, 
easily. Little insurance and a lot of faith. The struggle is when the storms come and people jump ship. Where was the faith to begin with? Where was the strength of our church when that storm came? When the pandemic arose, when the winds blew and the waters rose, both literally and figuratively, it is our individual and our corporate sin that weakens us. And we must confess it all and turn from it. We as a church must say, we as a church have sinned. We as individuals must say, we as individuals have sinned. And yes, this is a discipline that we must participate in regularly as a church. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, God has cleansed you. God has removed your sins as the east is from the west. Yes, God does not bring them back up to you in order to accuse you. However, Satan, we're told, prowls like a roaring lion, looking for people he can consume, looking for people he can devour. He knows where to get us. He knows where we fail, and he will bring it back up, not just to remind us of it, but to get us back into it to begin with. He will lead us back to it, and we will weaken the walls of our church if we allow that sin to hold on. And if we don't speak up, if we don't pray against it, we don't pray it out loud, if we don't confess it, if we don't as a body purge it, our human bodies, when an infection gets in, your whole body works to get rid of that infection, doesn't it? It's why you have fever. It's why you feel like mess and you lay on the couch for three days, or if you're a guy, seven days. Because your whole body is working to get rid of that infection. How big is that infection? Not very. As a matter of fact, you can get a splinter. A little piece of wood in your finger that can get infected and your whole body will rebel against that. Am I, am I right, doctor people, nurses? Your whole body will rebel against that. Every part of your body will say, no, okay, we got to shut down here. We got to fix this thing. Stomach, throw things out. Other parts of your body, y'all throw stuff out too. Let's get rid of some stuff. Uh, we got to raise the temperature in here. We got to cook this thing. White blood cells get to work. Y'all, everybody, all right, shut it down. Put them in the bed. We got to take care of this. For one little splinter, the church is a body. So for the splinters, for the diseases, for the cancers, for those things that Satan will constantly bring back in. Even with our pandemic, even with COVID, the concern primarily with COVID is not people who don't have any other illnesses. They can get it. They can get really sick. It happens. The big concern is people who already have something wrong. They're already weakened. 
they get now this other thing that normally wouldn't bother them that much, maybe put them in bed for a couple of weeks, and now it takes a very, uh, has a very good chance of killing them because they already had an illness. Satan does the same thing with the church. When we are already weakened by sin, it doesn't take much of a storm to tear the walls down. It doesn't take much of a sand ballot or Tobiah to come in and cause further problems that decimate a church. It is our individual and our corporate sin that weakens us and we must confess it all and turn from it. It's the repetition. It's the discipline that keeps us always on guard. If I'm confessing my sin of whatever it is, then I'm always on guard to see that when it's sneaking up on me again. Church, if we are constantly confessing our sinfulness of the past, of allowing infections to grow, then we are better prepared to stop those infections when we see them later. Isn't that what immunity does in our body? We recognize, our body now recognizes, you get the injection, your body now recognizes the virus. Hey, this is that virus. Haven't we already figured out how to fight that? Yeah, it's going to take a couple of days. It's not going to be great, but we're going to get rid of this pretty quickly. The church body has to act the same way. Y'all, we've seen this before. We know how this can rip apart a church. We cannot let it happen again. That's the discipline of confession. And I told you I was going to spend a little time there. Number four, we see Nehemiah's intercession for the people. Even in an intercession, verse eight, eight, verses 8 through 10, praying for the people, he's confessing for the group. Remember, Lord, you, you commanded us, if you're unfaithful, I'll get rid of you. Basically saying, we know we deserve this. He acknowledges that their sinfulness is great. We have done this. We have not kept commands, statutes, and ordinances. Please remember those things. But if you return to me, God, your graciousness, your grace is bigger than our sin. Your promises to return are greater than our unfaithfulness to you. And he asks that God restore them, restore us, your servants, your people, you promised you'd bring them back. Lord, do that, but also keep us faithful. They are your servants. Return to me. Carefully observe my commands. I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen for my name to dwell. Even in his intercession, he is confessing because time with God will lead our confession to become a request for corporate mercy. I've spent time with the Lord. I know my own sin. Now I know our sin as a group, as a corporate, family, a corporate body, as a church family. Lord, heal us. Be merciful to us. And number five, Nehemiah intercedes for himself. The corporate sin, I recognize it, Lord. 
God, I need help in this too. Nehemiah knew in verse 11, he had a new calling on his life. I talked about that at the beginning. It would be nearly impossible to get the king to even change his mind or to change previous king's minds, to do something different from what he had already planned. He knew that was going to be nearly impossible. He knew it would be extremely difficult, and read the rest of Nehemiah, it was, extremely difficult to lead this remnant, whatever he might bring out of Susa, the city they lived in, out of Persia, and whatever group he could gather when he got to Jerusalem, that was going to be extremely difficult. People were going to come against him, and they did. And so he prays for himself because time with God will lead us to confess our weakness and utter dependency on him. Church, can we get through this storm? Some of y'all are going to think, yes, I want you to think no. We cannot get through this storm. We can't make this. We can't do this. I can't do this. But my God, who is powerful and great and gracious, can. Nehemiah knew he couldn't do it. That his people couldn't do it. That Artaxerxes couldn't do it. That God was the only one that could do it. So as he confessed his weakness which most of our songs were about this morning. Most of them had a couple of verses of weakness and a verse of sin, fullness, all confession, because we can't do it. We as individuals can't recover from this storm. We as a church body cannot recover from this storm. Not if, one, we think we can do it without God. And two, if we think we can do it without confessing where we have been and what has weakened us against the storms that are coming. So we as a church need to get back into Confession. Corporate, personal, daily disciplines of confession. Nor can you save yourself. We have plenty of people that think, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. You can't do that without Jesus. You think, I'm going to overcome my sinful nature by the strength of my will. No, you won't. You don't have a will, you have a want. W-O-N apostrophe T. You, you can't. It won't work. Your only way of salvation, the only way that you can be a powerful church body is to be a body of redeemed believers trusting in Jesus. Acknowledging your personal sinfulness. Here's the thing. You don't get saved corporately. You get saved individually. You don't get saved because you're a part of a church. Membership, tithing, whatever. You get saved when you as an individual 
recognize your sinfulness, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Corporately, yeah, we're all sinners, but personally, I'm responsible for my sin. The wages of my personal sin is my personal death, my personal separation from God. I'll be there with a lot of other people, but it's on me that it happens. And the gift of God to me is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, offered to everyone, but necessary for me to respond to individually. And God proves his own love for us, for me, and that while we were still sinners, I was still a sinner, Christ died for us, for me. And everyone, every person who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't earn it. You can't get there on your own. You can only accept what Jesus has done, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart God has raised him from the dead, and then you will be saved. Saved individually and personally for a relationship that is only dependent on you, but saved individually and personally to be a part of the corporate body, the church family, right now is First Baptist Sulphur, but if you're watching from somewhere else, it may be somewhere else, but part of the universal church responsible for each other. To stand against the storms that will definitely come. So we strengthen ourselves, our corporate body, our church, against the storms by confession. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have provided a means for confession. God, we don't lose our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We don't have to be re-saved God, we only need to confess what we have done and possibly endure discipline. But Lord, may we not get to the point of discipline. May we discipline ourselves in order to prepare against those sins that would so easily entangle us. God, I thank you that you provide ways out, that no temptation has uh, overcome us, that you have not provided a way out for. And Lord, when we fail, when we sin, when we rebel, you forgive. God, I pray for our church as we take this month to recalibrate to, to get back into these disciplines. That we will be honest with ourselves about our, 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 our individual selves, our individual selves, and about our corporate body, our church family. And what we need to do to be spiritually prepared to stand against the storms that are going to continue to come. It's not over. And it will never be over. And we have to be ready. Lord, work on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if there's something you need to pray about, now's your time. Maybe you want to accept Christ and, and trust Him as your Savior. And you're not 100% sure what that means. Tom and Amy will be at the back door. Uh, if you'd like to talk with them, have them pray with you. If you'd like to turn and kneel where you are at your chair and there are things that you need to confess, go for it.
but let's make it a habit that we will be a church of strength because we are a church that admits where we have failed and we commit to not allow that in again. Let's stand and let's sing. Do business with him as we tell Jesus all about how we need him.